It is good to be with you. We're excited about today for a lot of reasons. Obviously, uh, there's the fun after the service that's planned. I'm hoping all of you will be able to stay around for that. Whether you're young or old, that time of connecting together as a church family is so important. And if you're a guest or a visitor with us, we hope you're planning on, we hope you're planning on staying. Even if you came not expecting to stay, we hope you do and uh, just get to enjoy uh, the family of Maple Avenue Baptist Church. But we're also excited just to be able to gather as God's people around his word, celebrating the truths that have transformed our lives. We're moving through the book of Isaiah. At our church, we just pick a book of the Bible and we move through it sequentially so that it's God in his, in his wisdom is setting the agenda for our church. And this week we're in Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you that looks like this. And Isaiah 6 is on page 571. So Isaiah 6, page 571. Because we believe when we read God's word, God's voice is being heard, we ask that you'd stand for the reading of God's word. In the Old Testament, when the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is used, the English translations put L-O-R-D in all caps. So we say, uh, when we read it, we read Yahweh, because that is the covenant name of God. Here, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, 
until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and Yahweh removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we are aware that there are many messages we hear in a week. Messages outside of ourselves that bombard us, but even messages from our own thoughts and minds and hearts. But there's no message we need more than your voice. And your word. We've just read it, and now as we linger over it, we together ask that your Holy Spirit would allow its truths to sink down deep, even as Terry prayed earlier, like the spring seeding. That it might grow and have its way within us. So may your Holy Spirit, we together ask for the power of your Spirit to be working as we consider Isaiah chapter 6. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old story about an indigenous tribal chief who was with his friend from New York in the city of New York, walking near Central Park. And amidst all the hubbub and din and noise, he stops and he says, I hear a cricket. And his friend looks at him incredulously. There's no way you could hear a cricket amidst, amidst all this noise. He says, no, I hear one. And he bent down. There's a dandelion growing in the crack of the sidewalk and he lifts up the leaf and there, sure enough, is a cricket. The friend says, how in the world were you able to hear that? And the chief says, it actually isn't that hard. All it is is a matter of what you're listening for. And he reaches down into his pocket and grabs a handful of coins and drops them on the sidewalk. And all the people around immediately turn and look for the money. Now, I don't know the exact origins or veracity of that story, but I think it illustrates a very profound truth. What we see and what we hear isn't just what's there. It's actually a reflection of what we value, what we are looking to see, what we are wanting to hear. And that's an important truth for us to be considering this morning with Isaiah 6 before us because the question that Isaiah 6 would have us consider is do we hear the voice of God? Are we looking to see God? 
What is it we value in what we're trying to see and hear amongst all that we could see and hear in this world? This is a critical question for us. It's not only the, the question of chapter 6 of Isaiah. It really, in a certain way, is the question of the whole book of Isaiah. Isaiah wants his people to see, to behold, the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh, the covenant God. And as a result of seeing him, to hear him, and to be changed by his word. And so here in Isaiah 6, as Isaiah tells his own story of his encounter with this God, there is a sense in which he's saying, I don't want this just to be my story. I want it to be all of our stories. I want us all to see and hear. So I encourage you this morning, I want, I want to ask you to just allow our time together to give you a little time to pause and reflect. Do I value seeing God and hearing him rightly as he's revealed himself with all his splendor, splendor and glory? Our passage is, there's two parts of it. The first part runs from verses 1 to 8. And it's Isaiah sees and hears Yahweh. The passage starts plainly enough. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. I want you to catch what happens there. He, 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 said, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on a throne. That's actually pretty significant because, as you'll remember if you've been following along with us in Isaiah, King Uzziah was kind of the Queen Elizabeth of the Jewish monarchs. He had reigned for an incredible 52 years, and his his reign, though he was not someone who was honoring God, nonetheless, his reign was marked by unprecedented peace, prosperity. It was, it was the largest the kingdom had been. These were good years for Israel. And so, when he dies, it no doubt left everyone with a feeling of instability. Politically, socially, what's going to happen? And Isaiah says, in that moment when he died, the vision that I saw, what I saw was God, the Lord, on his throne. Because amidst the rise and fall of nations and premiers and presidents and prime ministers, and kings, we must see God sitting above it all on his throne. But he's not just sitting on some huge golden throne with his train kind of trailing down his throne and down the stairs that led to his throne. That's not, it's not like just the other monarchs and kings of that era. When Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord, 
all that he sees is the hem, the very, the very bottom part of the train of his robe. And just that hem fills the massive temple edifice. Because Yahweh is that great, that majestic, that powerful. The scriptures teach us that in reality, no one can, can fully see God. He's just too glorious, too uh, awesome and splendor. spirit. So all the vision we get is, is the hem of his robe proceeding from that throne, that heavenly throne, filling the temple. But Isaiah, what he sees doesn't stop there because he does see the seraphim, that is the angels that are there serving at the king's bidding. These are majestic creatures with, with, with just, they've got their wings for flying, but they have two other sets of rings just so they can, wings, just so they can cover themselves in the presence of a holy God. But Isaiah doesn't just see, he also hears. He hears these seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies. Now in Hebrew, the way you put something in bold or underline it is through repetition. And it was uncommon in Hebrew to use threefold repetition. You'll find it almost nowhere else in all of the Old Testament scriptures, such that one Old Testament scholar says when this threefold repetition is used, it is a super superlative. Maybe it's a little too casual, but you could think of it like this holiest, est, est. If this is who Yahweh is, we need to understand what the word means. Oftentimes we think of the word holy meaning primarily morally pure. And there certainly is that connotation to it. We'll see later on Isaiah, in, in, in confronted with the holiness of God, is overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. So there must be an aspect of moral purity to this holiness that is who God is. But it also must be more than that. Because the seraphim, who are angelic beings and therefore themselves are without sin, are needing to cover themselves in the presence of his holiness. So if you study this word holy throughout the scriptures, you find it's something more than just moral purity. It's something related to the unique, separate, altogether different aspect of who Yahweh himself is. I was trying to think through how, how to help us grasp this. And I want us for a moment to think of maybe the, the grandest, most astonishing, awesome thing you've ever seen in your life. Maybe it's a breathtaking mountain vista. Maybe it's massive waves crashing against a rock and splashing into the air. Or maybe it's the plume of a enormous bonfire in the heat as you feel it and see it and take it all in. I don't know what it is for you. 
But those moments, whatever they are, they are, they're like once-in-a-lifetime moments that if you took a picture of it, or even if you try and remember it, you can't grasp it. It's something in that moment that's overwhelming. You could say there's a certain holiness to that moment. But what that is is just a drop, a drop of holiness where God is an ocean of that kind of holiness. This awesome, wondrous, fearful, glorious holiness of God where his moral purity, but all that who he is, radiates out of him in a way that is astonishing. The Yahweh of armies is holy, holy, holy. The seraphim don't stop there. They say the whole earth is filled with his glory. Glory can also be a tricky word to understand. Many things have a certain weight, a certain gravitas attached to them. That because of that weight or gravitas, there's a certain glory associated with it. So, for example, um, if we had invited Austin Matthews to our party after the church, and he'd agreed to come, hasn't happened, (laughs) there would be a certain glory associated with that. As he was coming Even people who weren't big fans would be a little self-conscious, thinking, okay, where do I stand? What do I say? How do I behave? Wherever he was in the room, there'd be a certain, everyone knows what's going on because there's a certain glory with his, his, his gravitas that he brings. And there are people with much more significant gravitas. I think of when I was in university, the president of the United States, Barack Obama, was coming to speak at the commencement. And it wasn't just a gymnasium in the church that felt the gravitas of that, the glory of it. The whole campus had people from secret services. We had to fill out forms because we were, our dorm was in the quadrangle where he was going to be speaking and we had to be vetted. And it was just a, like the whole campus of the University of Chicago was feeling the weight, the glory of the coming president. Maybe some of you who are single have a crush. Teenagers, I don't know if that's happened to you, but your crush has a little glory associated with them. Wherever they are, you kind of, you know they're there, and it kind of gives you a little bit of nervous energy, right? The glory of Yahweh doesn't fill a gymnasium or a university campus or the heart of a teenage girl. The glory of Yahweh fills the whole earth. Such is his holiestest nature. There's such gravitas to that that his glory fills the earth. 
Maybe the best way to grasp this is to just see how things respond when Yahweh in his glory and his holiness is revealed. We see it in verse 4. The very foundations of the th- and thresholds of the temple shake at just the angels announcing who he is. The building fills with smoke. And then the prophet himself says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say, I'm undone, or I am rendered mute. There's just, how do we grasp all that he's saying here? We sometimes um, can think, man, I would love to see God in all of his glory. Wouldn't that be nice? There was even a song popular when I was, when I was younger. I want to see your glory. I think there's a bit of biblical naivety when we think like that. Because every time in the scriptures when, when people actually behold Yahweh in his glory, they're just ripped apart, torn, rendered, exposed, trembling in fear. The prophet of God saying, woe is me for I'm lost. There's a Russian writer named Pushkin who tried to capture this moment in a poem. And this is what he wrote. And with his sword he cleft my chest and ripped my quaking heart out whole and in my sundered breast he pressed a blazing shard of living coal. There in the desert I lay dead. This is what beholding a holy God does to us. The prophet doesn't just stop there. Because when you see God in all his wondrous, awesome holiness, suddenly our Our sinfulness, our our many moral flaws, the ways we've actually rebelled against him and not behaved as we ought to have, are exposed. Maybe you've had this experience at work. You kind of have your way of doing things and you don't give much thought to it. But then the CEO shows up. And he's there for the day. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm not sure that's right. Oh, I've been doing that. That's not exact. And you're just, everything's there. Here, the prophet says, not just woe is me for I am lost. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king Yahweh of hosts. The prophet's task is bound up with his lips. He is the mouthpiece of God in that era for that time. His lips are everything. 
And he says, I'm undone because my lips are unclean. Pushkin describes it like this. And leaning to my lips he wrung, there out my sinful slithered tongue of guile and idle caviling. Before the holy God, the seraphim are given two extra sets of wings so they can cover themselves. Before the holy God, the prophet of God is saying, I'm undone because my sinful slithered tongue stands before a holy God. It's one of the most awful things that can happen to us to see God in his holiness. And yet, even this terrible thing is a gift of God to us. If the seraphim and if the prophet of God cannot stand before him, nor can we, and when we see him as we should, all our pretentious self-righteousness is exposed. The outward-facing facades that we've erected so that the world will think we're good come crumbling down. And the flaws of our face that we've tried to cover over with makeup, well, the makeup is stripped off, and there they are. We can't hold on to our self-righteousness, a sense of our own goodness, when we stand before a holy God. And that is a terrible thing, but it is also a gift, a gift from God to us. Well, the hearing and seeing does not stop. He sees something else, this prophet does. You see, in the temple, there was an altar. The altar had a fire that was kept burning perpetually, and it's where Israel would go to make sacrifices to atone for their sins. They knew, they were taught from the scriptures that as, as people who sinned in the presence of holy God, something had to be done to atone for that. So they would make these sacrifices on the altar. And, and here's what Isaiah sees. He sees one of the seraphim that does Yahweh's bidding going to that altar with tongs, so the seraphim can't even touch this coal, it's so hot. They get, a, they get a coal from the altar, and then they come and place it on the prophet's lips, the most sensitive part of his body being branded with this hot coal. It's a, it's a very visceral sign. A visceral sign, but an explained sign. Because Yahweh or Isaiah doesn't just see, he also hears. And Yahweh explains what this sign is meant to convey. 
Look at verse 7. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. A holy God exposes our sinfulness. But then a gracious God forgives our sins. What's true here in Isaiah in a vision gets fleshed out in the rest of the scriptures. The temple itself and the sacrificial system, the scriptures say, are just a shadow leading up to when Jesus would come and be the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that our rebellion that causes us to quake and say, I'm undone, our slithering tongue exposed, laying dead in the desert, and then Jesus comes and on the cross is the atoning sacrifice because of his holiness, able to make a way for us to be forgiven before a holy God, our sin atoned for, the truer and greater coal is something we can see and know. This is the way scripture works, beholding a holy God, seeing our own wretchedness and sinfulness in light of that, not measured against the world's standards of righteousness, but measured against him. And then we say, what, it, what can I do? I cannot stand. And the holy God says, I'm also a gracious God who's made a way for you. And we see Christ, our substitute, our atonement. But Isaiah's hearing doesn't end there. Next, he hears the voice of the Lord saying, verse 8, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And in response, instead of quaking, instead of trembling and being undone and deaf and lost, he says, here I am, send me. This turns the world's ideas of religion on their head. This is how the world thinks about religion. And almost any religious system that's a counterfeit that's out there goes like this. There is a holy God. If we want to please him, we have to ratchet up our holiness another degree, another degree, one more crank on the, on the ratchet. I can get just a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher, and if I can do enough to please this God, then he'll say, okay, you're useful to me. But the scriptures teach an altogether different view. There's a holy God but instead of trying to say, I can do better, I can be a little bit holier, I can be a little bit more righteous, I can just climb that rung one more inch so that maybe God will be pleased with me, it says, no, you're undone. You can't stand before a holy God. 
You can ratchet it up and ratchet it up, but all fall short of that. But when we realize how low we actually are and how short we actually fall, then God says, but I have made a way for you. It's my righteousness that allows your vileness to be atoned for. And not on the basis of my goodness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness counted to me through faith, I can be made right with God. And I'm part of his family. I'm adopted in. I'm welcomed in. I'm reconciled to my father. And then I'm like, okay, dad, what do you want me to do? I'll go do it in response to his grace and forgiveness. And that is the message Isaiah holds forth throughout his entire book. And it really is the message of all of scripture. This is what Isaiah the prophet saw and heard. But he doesn't just tell it so you have a little bit of his biography. He tells it because it's what he wants for all of us. Then God says, okay, I'm sending you. And in verses 9 to 13... We have the second section of this chapter, which is Israel does not see and hear. Israel does not see and hear. So Isaiah saw and heard, Israel does not see and hear. Um, <laughs> you got to appreciate God. All right, Isaiah, you're going to be my prophet. Here's what you're supposed to say. Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of those people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Thanks, that's a great prophetic task. I get to go and my message will harden everybody's hearts. It reminds me a little bit of a story I heard about the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards there was a man uh, named Elihu Parsons who wanted to marry his oldest daughter, Sarah. Now, Sarah, it appears, had a bit of a temper. And so his, Edward's biographer says that when Elihu came and asked for her hand in marriage, Jonathan plainly disclosed to him the unpleasant temper of his daughter. Before you get married, you just need to know a few things. Parsons responds, but she has grace, I trust? To which Edwards replied, I hope she has, but grace can live where you cannot. There is a little bit of that feel here, isn't it? Okay, if you're going to be my prophet, I need to tell you up front that this is not going to be an easy task. You need to know the temperament of the people you're going to. But obviously, as you read this, there's more going on than just an upfront God who has anticipated the rejection that the people will give to Isaiah's message. There seems to be an element, a causal element to hear, or to this, that it is actually the preaching of the word that will harden. So I want to ask you a question. Does the hot sun harden things 
or melt things? Well, of course, depends what it is, right? If it's an ice cream cone, it melts it. But if it's mud, it hardens it. And throughout all the scriptures, when man hardens his heart against God, you see both aspects contributing. Both are linked to what's happening there. Man's own conscious rebellion against God. And then God stepping in like the hot sun and saying, See, I'm hardening your heart. And and it's such that, as you read the scriptures... The, the mud as it hardens is not able to shake its fist at God and say, this is your fault. All that hot sun has done is exposed what's there. And yet God's sovereign hand is in both. Now, here in these verses... It's not so much an individual that's in view, but it's the whole nation of Israel. And and the fact that things have gotten to this point with Israel is not because God is like short tempers, like, I've had enough of you kids. Go to your rooms. I've never done that. God's not like me, thankfully. We saw in chapter 5 when Utah was preaching It's like a vineyard. God's done everything he can to cultivate it and and try and help it produce fruit, and it just keeps not producing fruit no matter what he does. You just think of the story of the scriptures, right? For for Israel, like when he first rescues them out of Egypt, they don't even want to be rescued. They did it first, but when things got tough, they're like, never mind, God, we'll stay slaves. He's like, no, I'm bringing you out. And then he rescues them. He brings them out of Israel, and then they start grumbling against God again. He's like, okay, I don't, I'm still going to be gracious and merciful with you. And he, and he parts the Red Sea, and this rebellious people, he carries out, see, I'm showing you his grace. They celebrate that. Then they get to the wilderness, and in the wilderness, they're grumbling against God again, but he says, you know what? I want you to see who I am. And so he sends them manna, and he sends them quail and he brings them water and he's taking care of them and then they get to the promised land like no 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 god you're not going to keep your promises we won't be able to beat these guys so he's like all right you're going to stay in the wilderness for a little bit but eventually after this generation passes i'm going to bring you right back into the land and he clears the land for them and he jericho's walls fall down they enter the promised land and they're like oh there's all sorts of cool idols let's go worship these instead he's like no come back to me and he sends his prophet after prophet after prophet saying come back to me so you hear the stories of elijah and a lot uh, Elisha, as they, as they proclaim the message of God to them, and yet still, they remain hard-hearted. They'll cry out to God. He rescues them from the foreigners. And then again, they keep going, and this pattern continues. I told you a few sermons ago that really foundational for understanding Isaiah is Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where Moses, at the end of his life, before they're about to go into the promised land, says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into the promised land and this pattern of rebellion is going to continue. And God is going to give you incremental tastes of his wrath so that you'll see the path you're headed down and turn and come back to him. But with each incremental step, you're going to continue down the path of rebellion. Until it gets so bad that I'm going to have to bring you back out of the land because foreigners are going to conquer you. 
You have to go into exile. And it's only sometime after that, as a nation, you come back to this land, I'll bring you back, and then you're going to see the fullness of the mercy I'm ready to show you. So God's kind of called what's happening. Now, this story has been taking place. If you take it from Egypt all the way until about the time of Isaiah's prophecy, it's been somewhere around six or 700 years of God faithfully saying, hear me, hear me, come, turn, repent, be healed. And so now, now he says, the blazing sun comes out and the mud is going to be hardened. It's a, it's a national thing and I want you to just see God's heart and all of that. But I'll say what is true nationally for Israel at that time is true for our own human hearts. And the scriptures warn that there can come a point where if we have heard the word of God over and over and that Holy Spirit is, is pricking our hearts and our conscience and we continue to resist it and push it away, that there can come a point where our hearts become so hard that no matter what vision of God there is, we will not see or hear. If you're in this room and there's any prick of God's conscience or of God's finger on your conscience, you are not at that point. But don't be flippant with that. We must not be flippant with those moments. We must allow God's Spirit, as he's working in our hearts, to bring conviction, lest we get to a point where we ourselves cannot hear and cannot see, like the nation Israel. Then the prophet pipes up, and he asks a great question in verse 11. Okay. He says, how long, O Lord? How long? It's a great question. And the fact that the prophet asked this, I think, reveals two things. First, it reveals that he agrees with the assessment of his people. He's not like, wait, 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 God, why would you do that to them? No, it's like, okay, we get it. It's been 600 years. You've done everything you can to have this vineyard produce, and it's time to just try again. We get it. But there's a second thing that this question reveals. It reveals that he knows the heart of his God, that even this judgment is not the final word. He knows what the prophet Moses said, that even after the exile, there will come a time of restoration so he's like, okay, I, I get, that's my spot, my spot in the line. I'm the one who comes and hearts are hardened. I understand, but how long, when will this end? And Yahweh's response is, look, the exile is coming. I'm going to bring such devastation. The land will be uninhabited. People are going to be carried out from this land. What I said I had to do, I'm going to have to do. And even that, when there's this remnant that starts to return, even that is going to be wiped low. But 
But after that, after that, when it's just a stump left, Isaiah says, the holy seed is its stump. Where'd that come from and what does that mean? Remember a few weeks ago, I introduced this idea of Isaianic clues. It's a way Isaiah likes to prophesy. He puts these kind of mysterious intrigue things in there. You go, what's going on? And then as, as his prophecy builds, you kind of see where it goes. And here, this is exactly what he's doing. The holy seed is its stump. This points back, that word seed points all the way back with echoes to Genesis. In Genesis, after mankind rebels against God and brings all the mess that is this world, God says to Eve, one of your seed is going to be the one who will come and crush the serpent who caused all this. And then to Abraham, he says, one of your seeds will be the one through whom all families of the earth find their blessing. And so we start tracing the family line of Abraham, which is the Jewish nation, because through them, God is going to bring this seed. So it has echoes of that. But as Isaiah himself develops it, we saw back in chapter 4, he talked about a branch of the Lord that's going to be the, the future kingdom. And then in chapter 11, in verse 1 of Isaiah, he talks about how this stump and this branch is actually from Jesse, that is from David. So there's a Davidic, it's, it's going to be a Davidic new plant. And then as I, Isaiah 53 he talks about the, the root that's going to come out of this dry, barren land is going to be the suffering servant who takes our sins upon himself. And as you start to put these clues together and then you see Jesus come, you realize this is exactly what was happening. Out of all the verses in Isaiah, which do you think are the most quoted in the New Testament? Most quoted verses in, the, in, in all of Isaiah. You, you have... For unto us a son is given. You have, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and name him Emmanuel. You have, um, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He's wondrous, wondrous. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Prepare in the desert a highway for our God. All these wonderful passages. The the verses that are quoted the most in the New Testament are Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Bit of a surprise. I was surprised this week to learn that. Five times they're quoted in the New Testament with a sixth allusion to them. God is sovereign over the dark clouds that come the Bible is clear that the dark clouds that come into our lives are a product of mankind's rebellion. Sometimes it's an issue of our own sin. Sometimes it's an issue of someone else's sin. But the dark clouds in our life consistently in the Bible are rooted in the rebellion of man against God. We're at fault for them. And yet... Consistently, the scriptures teach that God is sovereign over those dark clouds such that he is committed to using those dark clouds to bring about the rain, the very rain that our world so needs. 
And when the New Testament quotes this passage, whether it's Jesus or the apostles, they're saying, look, a hardening happened. The religious leaders of Jesus' day rejected Jesus, and Jesus is like, just like Isaiah said was going to happen. But the implication, I'm here now. At the very time, after this hardening happens, a new kingdom is arising, a kingdom that's not just bound to one nation, but to all nations, including the Jewish nation, but all of us who are hardened in our sin, all of us who are like Israel, rebellious, all of us, the kingdom is open through Christ to him, this stump kingdom that Jesus arises and says, there is a new way, just like God foretold, the dark clouds pour forth their blessing rain at the time of Jesus. And that's why, that's why the New Testament loves to quote this because exactly what's going on here, this hardness, this not hearing, this not seeing that happens for Israel and can happen to any of us, it was a, God was using those dark clouds to prepare the way for a new stump. And out of that stump would come a blessed kingdom that fills the whole earth that anyone who would embrace Christ would be able to come and know the blessing of that kingdom. We started by thinking about the question, do we value hearing and seeing our God? The opening story, maybe it's implied that it's, it's more noble to hear the cricket than to hear the coins. But really both are vain pursuits. The real question is, do we value seeing God? Do we value hearing God? That's the critical question this passage poses to us. I wonder how you answer that. Let's pray. Father, all of us in this room now are culpable because we have heard your word. And what we do with it matters. So help us to be people who see and hear, who behold the Holy One of Israel. Holy, holy, holy. Amen.